This is the Cubicle Renegade podcast session number 10. In this episode, I talk with James Clear, founder of Passive Panda. We talk all about habits, how to create a positive one, how to quit negative ones, and what hacks you can use to stick with habits. Welcome to the Cubicle Renegade podcast, where unfulfilled desk jockeys become fearless entrepreneurs. Learn from corporate escapees and world changers who are successfully building businesses that matter. Here's your host, Caleb Wojcik. Hey everyone, before we dive into my chat with James, I'd love to give a shout out to what I spent the majority of my time working on over the past nine months. It's called Fizzle.co. It's an online business learning platform that I built with Corbett Barr and Chase Reeves. It consists of two major parts. First, we have an entirely video-based course library that's filled with actionable training on a huge variety of topics that will help take your business to the next level. We have courses that are strategic, like how to understand your target audience, and how to differentiate your business from your competition. And we also have more technical courses like how to accept payments online and how to use Google Analytics to track the visitors that come to your website. On top of these courses, we have a bunch of founder stories with entrepreneurs like Leo Babalto of Zen Habits and Pat Flynn of Smart Passive Income that cover what they would do differently if they were starting over online. We also hold monthly office hour sessions that we spend the majority of time on answering member questions. The second and my favorite part of Fizzle is the community forums. Inside are hundreds of entrepreneurs that are either aspiring or currently building businesses that fund their life. These people are all in on making their ideas work and putting themselves on the line. In the forums, our members, or Fizzlers as we like to call them, are holding each other accountable, getting feedback on their ideas, and making real breakthroughs in their businesses. If this sounds like something you're interested in, just go to pocketchange.com slash Fizzle, that's F-I-Z-Z-L-E, and you can get 50% off your first month. All right, so without further ado, here's my chat with James. Hey everyone, today we're joined by James Clear, who is basically a modern day renaissance man. He's an entrepreneur. He writes at both PassivePanda.com and JamesClear.com. He's also an award-winning travel photographer, a former ESPN academic All-American baseball pitcher, and really that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface. So thanks for joining us today from North Carolina, James. Hey, absolutely. I'm happy to be here. So let's start way back, like before all your awards and doing stuff online, where'd you grow up and what'd you like to do as a kid? So I was born and raised in Hamilton, Ohio. Uh, most of my family has grown up there, lived there. So I was around the vast majority of my family members. I have one uncle who lives in Georgia, but other than that, everybody's within like a half hour. So it was very family based. I spent most of my weekends uh, hanging out on my grandparents' farm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, Hamilton's about 30 minutes north of Cincinnati, but I'm definitely closer to like the backwoods in the country than the big city. So it was cool. It was a good, it was a great childhood. I have nothing to complain about. I have wonderful parents, wonderful grandparents, a lot of really good influences, but I didn't really have um, any entrepreneurial influences, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. But what I did have was a lot of explorers in my family, Um, whether that's my grandma who was going on vacations by herself after my grandpa died and like going around to see a little bit of the world or my uncle who goes out to nature all the time either to take photos or hunting or whatever it may be and so i i always had these people in my life who were sort of explorers in their own right and i think that played a pretty significant role in my childhood as well like i loved spending every weekend out in my grandparents fields like playing in the creek or building dams or you know just running around doing you know all kinds of stupid stuff and so I had that influence. And then my parents also really tried to push balance as part of our like childhood and upbringing. And so I did a lot of different things. One thing I didn't do, I feel like the only thing I didn't do was music. Um, and I, I would love to play an instrument. But other than that, I mean, 
I played baseball, basketball, I swam, I played football for one year, which was <laughs> in football, there are guys who get hit and there are guys who are giving hits and I was always getting hit. So I, uh, I decided that that wouldn't be the best one for me, but, um, football, soccer, all, all kinds of different sports. Mm -hmm. And then also just academics in school. Um, I loved learning. I've always loved learning. And so that was sort of instilled from an early age as well. So I guess I had, I had a lot of these varied touch points and a really cool, interesting experience for someone who didn't really leave Ohio that much. And, uh, it was, it was great. It was a really good childhood. Like work-wise, did you have any like summer jobs that you enjoyed or hated when you were growing up? So the first job that I ever had was waxing and stripping tile um, at a grade school about 10 minutes from where I lived. And um, waxing and stripping tile, painting the floors. Actually, there was this one time I was up on the third floor of this building and all the windows and stuff were shut because we were painting. So we had to like seal up all the the entries and exits and stuff. And we were using this oil-based paint. Uh -oh. And so I used this paint all day long, right? I'm painting for like eight hours. And this oil gets in like all my pores and everything on, on my skin. And I had to pitch that night in a baseball game. And so I go to this baseball game and I'm throwing for, I mean, I made it like two and a third innings. Like I was dying. I was out there for about 30 minutes. I was like, I can't sweat. Like I can't, I was just <laughs> overheating. I almost fell over on the mound, but so, so that was, but that was actually, it was a fun job because I had great people that I was working with. So, you know, it was a lot of fun to hang out with those guys. And it was, it was a good job too, just because like I said, I grew up on my grandparents' farm and stuff. So I valued manual labor and like shuttling the cattle in and out mm -hmm. and shipping them around. And I don't know, it's, I always enjoyed like doing things with my hands or creating things. And I think actually it's interesting to think back on that now because you know, today I spent a lot of my time writing and creating, you know, photography or whatever it happens to be. And th in many ways, that's making something as well. And so there were there were some roots of that from either my first job or the way I grew up as well. And then did you know what you wanted to do going into college or did you just kind of look at all the majors and pick one or? That's interesting to think about. So I, I would say no, I definitely didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I did know that I enjoyed science and that I enjoyed like medicine and health and I love being an athlete and playing sports. So there were like all these different touch points with health and medicine. And so I knew that I enjoyed that. But other than that, I, I wouldn't say that I really knew much more. And so in high school, I, you know, I just pursued whatever we had to take and, and enjoyed most of it and played sports and everything. And then going into college, I decided that actually this is a good indication that I didn't know what I wanted to do. I ended up designing my own major. Um, so I didn't even, when I looked at the book and saw all the options, I didn't even see anything that I wanted to take. So I had to create something. Um, I ended up calling it biomechanics. It was mostly biology and physics and anatomy, and then a little bit of math mixed in. And then I, you know, I went to a liberal arts school at Denison university. So I, I took a lot of things in other areas as well, but, um, yeah, so I would say that I didn't really know, but I sort of found my way and sort of created my own path of study, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so you didn't really take many business classes then when you were an undergrad? No, actually, I took, I mean, I took econ, macro and micro econ, and that was it. And we, Denison doesn't even have like a business program. There's just economics is mm -hmm. the closest thing. And so I, I didn't have any business skills. And that's actually one thing that drove me towards getting my MBA after undergrad was the fact that I, that I didn't, I wasn't familiar with it. And I thought, oh, this would be a good way to learn a lot of that. Um, the other piece was that I couldn't decide if I wanted to go to medical school or a PhD program or what I was going to do science wise. And I spent most of my undergrad years 
getting decent grades, but really being focused on baseball. So I didn't really think that much about what I wanted to do next. Yeah, you were trying so, to break through with baseball as yeah, opposed to and, a traditional Yeah, yeah, I was. I mean, my dad played in the minors with the St. Louis Cardinals for a little while. So I always had dreams of playing professionally myself. And um, I mean, at the end of the day, right-handers who throw 88 are like a dime a dozen. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there was no real reason for someone to go with me over somebody else. But I am proud of of the career I had and the people I played with and the teams that we were on. It was, it was a lot of fun and it was definitely, it was definitely satisfying as a career, but you're right. That spent, that took a lot of my time thinking about that and focusing on that and spending time working towards it. And so as a result, it seemed like a really good option for me to have some time to at least figure out what I wanted to do next. And honestly, I think that was the biggest benefit of me getting an MBA or going to graduate school in general was that it gave me two years to think and to plan and to figure out what I was going to do next. And so you were going full-time? Were you working at the time? Yeah, I went full-time. Uh, no, I so I was lucky. I got a scholarship to go, so I didn't have to worry about debt or, or paying or anything, mm -hmm. so that helped a lot. Um, and this was at Ohio State. And so I was at Ohio State for two years. In between the first and second year, I worked at a medical practice, um, an orthopedic medical practice. And then while I was there, my graduate assistantship was um, analyzing venture capital investment for the state of Ohio. So I was working in the Center for Entrepreneurship. And that was so the combination of these two things, you know, I had all these different touch points with health and wellness, mm -hmm. whether it's fitness or athletics or being a science major, whatever it was, and then working at this medical practice. On, so that's on one end. And then on the other end, I have this this job I'm doing in the Center for Entrepreneurship where I'm seeing all these people start exciting companies. I'm getting to understand a little bit more about the venture capital world and how it works. And I'm sort of, you know, it's wetting my appetite for maybe doing something on my own. Mm -hmm. Now, I had considered being an entrepreneur before this had happened. You know, I have sketches back from like my junior and senior years of undergrad where I was designing like my first website, even though I didn't know, you know, I could draw a box on a piece of paper, yeah. even though I could design <laughs> it online. So I, I had these sketches. So th there was there were like the seeds of that early on. But working in the Center for Entrepreneurship really made it tangible for me because I saw, you know, 30, 40, 50 different people starting businesses every year. And it's like, these guys can do it. I can do it, too. Mm -hmm. So that was when I started thinking about it a little more seriously. And then not having, you know, traditional work experience when you went in to get your MBA. What was that experience like for you? I, I know I jumped right in as well. I was working at the time, but I had little to no, you know, traditional work experience when I was taking my MBA and they're always like, well, you should work for three to five years. Like, what was that experience like for you? I would say, so I think there are two different ways to look at it. The first is they say you should have traditional work experience before you go get your MBA. And in general, I would agree with that. I think that the classmates that I had who were able to contribute the most to the cases that we studied or the courses that we took often had real world experiences that they could draw on. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was great because I could benefit from their experience and learn from, you know, from what they talked about. And I would say that if you're planning on taking the traditional route and, you know, and being the, the traditional worker, middle manager or whatever, and working in corporate finance or investment banking, an MBA can be a great option for that because it's, you know, it's a feeder towards those type of careers. Mm -hmm. But for me, I was never interested in that. You know, I, I never wanted to be the manager, uh, the vice president of a supply chain or the, you know, the investment banker, or the, you know, the corporate finance mm -hmm. person. And so because I didn't want that, a lot of the things that I took there didn't necessarily prep me for what I did want, which was to create my own thing or to do something in, in health and wellness and medicine. And so 
Now, the the flip side of that, the better or the good way to look at it is that because I didn't have those previous experiences in, say, corporate finance, for example, I didn't know that I was supposed like that the MBA program was leading me that way. And so I looked for a bunch of options just to figure out how to do things that I wanted to do. So like I stepped outside of the business school and took courses in health policy. Um, I took a biochemistry class. I applied for a couple different conferences and got chosen for those. And so I went to Switzerland for the first time. Then I went back again the next year. Then um, the in my second year, I found a way to study abroad. And so I lived in Scotland for a couple months. So there were all these ways that I was able to to do things in a different manner than the typical MBA. And I think that was because I didn't have work experience and because I wasn't already on this path where everybody said, okay, good, you worked for three years, now go get your MBA, you can come back and be a middle manager and you know all that stuff. So I think there, there are different uh, benefits and drawbacks of it. The main thing is figuring out what you want, right? Because if you know what direction you want to go in, then you can tailor the experience to, to benefit you in the best way possible. Mm -hmm. And so how did you go from finishing your MBA to then, you know, writing online and starting your audience there? So there's a, I should give a little bit of a background on why I got started and how, how it led me that way. So the, when I was working at the medical practice, I looked around and I saw, and I, I've always been interested in going into medical school myself, but I, you know, I got to go into surgeries. I got to see a little bit of the business back end. It was a really great position for me to get a feel for what it would be like. But when I looked around, I saw a lot of physicians who were either, you know, you can imagine they get out of school, they spend the first five years paying off their loans. Then they look around, they say, well, this doctor has a big house and a nice car. So I'd like a big house and a nice car. And then, you know, they get something like that. And then they, they, they get to this point where many physicians, not all of them, but many of them are sort of locked into the lifestyle they lead. They have to go into the hospital every week. They have to work a lot of hours because they need to make money to keep up the lifestyle. And they don't really have that much freedom or choice mm -hmm. with the way that they're doing things. So it's a weird thing to have a job where you're making a lot of money. It's well-respected by people and you're helping people in a very significant way, but you don't feel like you have that much control or freedom of your own life. And so I didn't want to go down that rabbit hole. And I thought, well, I do love many things about medicine and health. Like I, I, there are so many things I love about it, and we can get into that later. But what I could do is I could, I'm in you know, at the same time, like I said, I was working in the center for entrepreneurship. So it's like, what I could do is I could build a business that could pay for me going to medical school later. And if I decide I don't want to go, or if I decide that I hate medicine, I'll have an out because I'll have a successful business that I enjoy running. I can just do that instead. Mm -hmm. So I sort of saw it as a way, I saw entrepreneurship as a way to bulletproof myself from making a bad decision from, you know, I would be able to do something that I loved forever and it would enable me to do other things that I enjoyed. So that was why I got started. So once I graduated from the MBA program, I was working on a project for the state of Ohio and that finished a couple months later. And after that got done, that was when I launched Passive Panda, which was my first website and first business. Mm -hmm. And so through Passive Panda, you've been pretty successful in getting on outlets like US News and World Report, Yahoo Finance and other places like that. And did you actively seek out some of that press? Yeah, absolutely. I think that one thing that especially if you're I mean, there are many different modes of online business, but if you're a blogger or someone who creates content, I think it's your responsibility to get the word out about what you create, not just to create it. And so I spent a significant amount of time creating content, but also making sure that I was getting in touch with people who could maybe push it somewhere that I couldn't. So whether that was trying to contact an editor at US News and World Report or figuring out how to get an article syndicated on Yahoo Finance or um, you know, getting a guest post published on a popular blog, whatever that may be. 
I, I spent a lot of time connecting with people and reaching out to them to see if I could, you know, get my stuff featured elsewhere. And which, which of those tactics work and which of them don't work? I would say, honestly, I think a lot of people will, will say like, oh, it can't be that easy. Like you can't just email somebody and ask it to happen. But honestly, in my experience, most of it just comes down to hustle and whether or not you contact enough people. And you have to make it about them. Like it has to be beneficial for their audience. It has to be a good fit. You can't just pitch stuff all day long. Mm-hmm. But I found a ton of success from emailing someone, you know, and either either getting an introduction and asking to talk over Skype first so they get to know you. And then at the end of that conversation, you can be like, hey, I'd love to write an article for you guys, or I have something that seems interesting that maybe your audience would like. Would you be interested in me sending that over to you? Mm-hmm. Whatever. And then in many cases, what people forget is that if it's a content producing outlet, so whether it's a news source or a blog, people are starved for good content. Like editors want good stuff to put on their site that their audience will enjoy. So it's not that hard of a pitch if you're creating something valuable for their audience. They're going to want it because they they always need good content. So um and I, I really haven't done much more other than, than emailing people and showing them what, you know, what's beneficial that I can provide or what I've already created that their audience may enjoy and then emailing them and letting them know about that. And are you dropping things like stats of traffic and subscribers and stuff or early on you were just pitching pure content? Well, it depends on it depends on the outlet that I'm going to mm-hmm. and the the goal of the article. But for example, my first guest post was on a web design blog called Six Revisions, which had about eighty thousand subscribers, I think, at the time. And so it was, you know, I knew it was going to do pretty well for me, and it did end up driving a couple hundred subscribers overall, I think. But when I pitched Jacob, their editor, I just sent him an email and said, "Hey." I see that you guys put up an article every day. I know that you write a couple articles about like project management, the finance side of web design. I run um, I run a website for freelancers and solopreneurs, and I know a lot of web designers and graphic designers are you know are working on their own. Here are a couple article ideas that I could write for your audience that I think would work well. Mm-hmm. And so I just you know gave him like three titles and then sent it off, and he was like, yeah, why don't we go ahead and run with this one? And then I wrote it and sent it over, and that was it. And I had never talked to him before. It was just a cold email. But because I made it about him and about his audience and what value they could get from it, it worked out fine. And now, you personalize it a little more than dear sir or madam. Like you, oh, you, yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> but for, yeah, template emails are the worst. I mean, don't, I, it's worth it to spend 10 times the amount of time and write to 20 people than it is to just form email 200. Yeah. It's not going it, to, it doesn't matter. Like people aren't stupid. I mean, I, I write every email I write is personalized. Mm-hmm. It's like individual to that person. I don't copy and paste, like type them out. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's the only way to do it. But then for other things, so like I've had other big wins, you know, either whether it's a podcast I was interviewed on or, uh, an article that I wrote for us news and world report. The first way that I got to write for us news, I was introduced to the editor by a friend who had written there before. Mm-hmm. So that's another great strategy is, if you want to be somewhere, if you want to be in Forbes or written up in U.S. News or whatever it is, look for someone who's already writing there. Usually it's a blogger or somebody who's pretty easy to get in touch with, a journalist. Then contact that person. Say, hey, you write about this. I write about this stuff too. I'd love to talk to you. You know, I'm just looking to get to know people in the industry. You guys sit down and talk for 20 minutes on Skype or over the phone. And then you can send them an email the next week and be like, hey, I just saw this article you wrote in U.S. News. It looks great. Do you have any idea like how I could write there as well? Or do you know anybody over there who might be interested? And, you know, I have a couple ideas that I'd like to write there. Mm -hmm. And that type of linking between the people who are already creating content on the sites and the editors who are sort of the gatekeepers, 
is has been successful for me as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good tactic because to me, if I've never heard of the person before and they submit something for one of the sites that I work for, it's a little more hesitant. But if I've met the person before or they've emailed about something else, like non-pitch first, or even if they've like replied to tweets or something, like even the little things help you stand out when you're doing those types of things. So, so let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the topic that we want to talk about today, which is habits. So before we dive into any particular strategies or anything, why are habits so important to you and why do you spend so much time thinking about them? Well, I think, I mean, they're important to me, but I think they're actually important to all of us, whether we admit it or not. Uh, you know, the, the fact of the matter is what you do on a daily basis, whether it's for work or your health or your relationships, whatever it may be, the vast majority of things that you do are just done out of habit and routine. I mean, if you're, if you're married or if you've been in a relationship for a little while, you probably know the habits of your partner that are either annoying to you or good to you, right? They're just, they're things that people like don't even think about. They just do them all the time. And, and usually you can understand other people's habits better than they can understand them about themselves. Sure, like sure. And that's actually, it. so one reason why I spend a lot of time thinking about it is because it's hard to be self-aware about it, right? Mm -hmm. And so if we, if we recognize first that habits are extremely important and that they drive most of the actions you do throughout the day, then we can start to look at what, you know, what habits am I doing? How can I be more self-aware about it and how can I change them? Mm -hmm. So for example, just to show you the impact of habits on your daily life, if you, when you wake up in the morning and put your shoes on, it's almost always, it will almost always be true that you put the same shoe on first. And like, you don't think about the fact that you put your right shoe on before your left, but you probably do it every day or your left before your right, whatever it happens to be. When you go to the grocery store, you almost always walk in and turn to the same direction first, whether it's right or left. And you don't think about that, but that's how it is. And there are a thousand or a million different examples like that in everyday life where you just do the same thing out of pattern because you have to. If we had to think about every decision that we made, should I put my shoe on the left one on or the right one on? Should I go right or left when I walk in the grocery store? If we had to think about the world and our lives in that level of detail, we wouldn't have enough willpower or mental stamina to make any important decisions. So what happens is our brain ends up automating a lot of these other behaviors. And so that way we don't have to make active decisions about mm -hmm. them. The important part of this is that many of the things that you're doing, whether it's from a productivity standpoint or from, you know, like I said, relationships or health, they've become automated, even though you haven't actively thought about, oh yeah, that's good that I can just go ahead and automate this process. So if you think about it and become more self-aware about it and understand how habits work, which we'll talk about in a second, you can make drastic improvements in your daily routines, which will end up leading to these, you know, life-changing transformations or these, you know, a significantly better job or better health or better relationships, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. So one of these strategies that you talk about you call it um, focusing on lifestyle and not life changing. So what do you mean by that? Well, so think about, think about the way that most people approach a goal, right? We, when we typically approach a goal and we think about what we want to do, we think about what we desire and what maybe is important to us and, you know, what we would like to have happen. You know, I want to lose 30 pounds or I would love to run a marathon or I would love to earn $20,000 more a year. These are like desires that we have, mm -hmm. right? Those types of things are life-changing transformations. But instead, I think it's much more important to focus on these small lifestyle habits that can lead you to those life-changing things rather than focusing on the goal at, that's at the end. Because what happens is if we think, oh, I want to run a marathon by you know July 1st, then if you don't run a marathon by that time, you end up feeling like a failure 
even if you've been running consistently and you're further along than you were before. And I think that's the wrong way to think about it because when we feel like a failure, when we don't achieve some arbitrary goal by a timeline that we set in the beginning, what happens is we end up getting demotivated. We end up you know, feeling uh, bad about ourselves and what, what we're able to accomplish. And so as a result, we stop the behavior that, you know, that was beneficial to us in the first place. So compare, for example, you know, if losing 30 pounds would be a life-changing thing, but eating one healthy lunch per day would be a lifestyle choice. If publishing your first book would be a life-changing type of habit, but writing, you know, three paragraphs a day would be a daily type of lifestyle choice. If running a marathon would be a life-changing thing, running three days a week would be a lifestyle choice. And so I think focusing on these daily lifestyle habits is much more important for long-term change than getting really motivated about a particular life-changing or transformation. Yeah, and I think part of it is it's easier to focus on the finish line of like the big event than it is to think about all the work that you have to put in in between to get there. Well, it's also, I mean, yeah, exactly. And it's more, it's sexy to think about, you know, to see the story of the P90X person who lost 50 pounds in 12 weeks or whatever, right? It's like, that's, that's much easier to see. And we, we glorify the, um, the product rather than the process. Mm -hmm. And part of it makes sense. I mean, we have to have results, you know, in order to see something tangible, that changes happened. But what gets you there is the daily process and not, the, you know, the, the aspirational goal. And so speaking about process, you have a thing you call the reminder routine and reward cycle. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So I, I first got this idea from BJ Fogg, who's a um, behavior psychology professor at Stanford. Mm -hmm. And he, he sort of refers to it as like trigger routine reward. And the, in the book, the power of habit, which is pretty popular, just came out mm -hmm. last year, I think. They do like cue routine reward or something like that. But the basic idea is this. I go with reminder routine reward because it's the three R's of habit change. And the, the basic idea is that all habits fall into the same pattern. And so the first piece is you have to have some type of reminder. You have to have something that cues the behavior, that triggers the behavior. So, for example, when your phone rings, that's a reminder to do something. Then you have the second R, which is routines. So that's the actual habit. So in this case, the phone rings. That's a reminder. Answering the phone is the habit. That's the action, the actual behavior. Then the third piece is the reward. And so that's the benefit for doing it. And so, you know, for when you answer your phone, it could be finding out why the person calls you. So that's, you know, satisfying that curiosity mm -hmm. is the benefit of the behavior. And the result is when you have a reminder, a routine, and a reward, and it goes in that cycle, and if the reward is positive, then it tells your body and your mind, the next time this reminder happens, you should do it again. And so it's this, it's this positive feedback loop. And what happens is that when we have that feedback loop for anything in our life, whether it's, you know, you feel like you want to smoke a little bit, there's a, or, you know, you're standing outside with a friend and that's a reminder that you should smoke. And so you pull out a cigarette, you do the routine and the reward is you get to connect with somebody that you, you know, form this connection with a friend and you're smoking together. Mm -hmm. And so the next time that you're standing outside with them, there's a positive feedback loop. Oh, I want to feel that connection again. And so I pull out a cigarette and smoke again. Mm -hmm. And, and so there's, there's this feedback loop that provides the reasoning behind these habits forming. And when it happens enough, it ends up becoming a habit that you don't even think about. So whether it's brushing your teeth or turning right in the grocery store or pulling out a cigarette, they all follow the same basic pattern of reminder, routine, reward. Whether it's a good habit or a bad habit. 
Yes, yeah. exactly. And, and you know, the question, a lot of times it's like, oh, well, if bad habits are so bad for us, why do we do them? Well, it's because of the reward. It's because you get some benefit from doing the habit. Even though it's bad for you, even though you know it may be a, a destructive behavior, there's still a benefit from doing it or a psychological reward from doing it. It makes you feel good or whatever it may be. And so to break, let's say, a bad habit, which of those three things do you focus on? Do you focus on that reminder, that trigger? I think you need to focus on the reminder and the reward. It depends on the habit, though. So, for example, um, my girlfriend bakes a lot of cookies, and so a lot of times I'll have, you know, like a plate full of cookies sitting on my kitchen counter. Mm -hmm. And when I walk into the kitchen, if I see that cookie, I want to eat it, even though I didn't really think about it. But then when I do eat it, it tastes good, and I'm like, yeah, it was great. And so there's that positive feedback loop, and I want to do it again, right? Now, what I've found is because I'm not actually desiring it, like yearning for it, I don't really want it. I just happen to eat it when I see it. If I remove the reminder, so if I put the cookies in a bin and put them in the pantry, for example, and don't see them, then I'll never eat them. That's all I need to do to break that bad habit. I just need to change. I just need to remove the reminder. And this is sort of a basic principle of forming better habits, too. If you want to make something easier to do, so if you want to form a good habit, reduce the number of steps that you need to get started on it. If you want to make a bad habit harder to do, then increase the number of steps to get harder on it. You know, if you're if you're trying to quit smoking and you have cigarettes sitting on your table, then, you know, or if you take them off the table and put them in a closet, you increase the, you know, the step a little bit, maybe it's a little harder. But if you don't have them in the house at all and you have to drive to the store, then it's much harder. And so by increasing the the number of steps between you and the bad habit, is one way to break. Um, the other way to break it is by analyzing the reward. And this can get kind of tough. You know, some people will say it depends on what you want out of the behavior. So if you can substitute a behavior in that gives you the same reward, then you can eliminate the bad behavior. So this this is the classic Alcoholics Anonymous example. So the reason that Alcoholics Anonymous formed the way it did, it's because they found that you know, a lot of, let's say, let's say a man goes to work and then he gets off work and he um, goes to the bar because he wants to hang out with his buddies, talk about the workday, complain about his wife, whatever. It's like the social network, right? Mm-hmm. And so then what AA did was they came in and said, hey, you know what? We'll do the same thing. Same reminder. You get off work, same routine. You come hang out with friends, but you do it at our meeting instead. So instead of going to the bar, you come to this meeting and the reward is the same. You get uh, you get the connection that you have with your buddies. You get to talk about work. You get to complain about your wife. You can do all that here instead of going to the bar and doing it, right? right? And so the the how they broke that bad habit is by substituting a different routine in that gives the same reward. So you can either do it by taking the cookies off the counter and removing the reminder, or you can do it by substituting a behavior that gives you the same reward. Yeah, so it sounds um, like you can do any of the three. You just kind of have to figure out which works best for that habit. Yeah, well, it comes down to understanding the reminder and the reward because you can you can figure out a routine that gets you there, but you can't just, you know, you can't just substitute a new routine if it operates on a different reminder or if it doesn't give you the same reward. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, like if if your goal is to connect with somebody and that's and that's why you go and drink after work, then exercising on your own isn't going to do it because it doesn't give you the same reward. So, right. Um, so you have to, you have to have those two things, but yeah, there are a lot of different options. The reason in some cases it's very simple to change it. You know, for example, my cookies on the counter example, but, uh, for smoking, for example, it might be really hard to break that because if you have, you know, if you smoke when you get in your car on the way to work, when you stand outside with friends, 
when you're, you know, before you go to bed at night or when you wake up in the morning. Well, now you have like three or four or five different reminders that kick that habit off. And so you need to figure out different ways to approach each scenario, Mm -hmm. but they all follow the same pattern. Mm -hmm. And so you have something you call the visibility method. Is that involved with the reminder piece? That you were talking yes. about? Yeah. So I, I actually use this for setting for forming good habits. And so I'll let me let me give you a story on how I how I came to this conclusion. And then also and then I'll give you an example of how I use it to form good habits. And then maybe you'll be able to see like how it translates well to work and entrepreneurship and whatever it is that you're focused on health, everything. So there's a, a professor named Dan Ariely at Duke. And he did a research study where he analyzed two different groups. And so in one group, there are really low numbers. So it's all down like five, eight, 10%. And what this, this group is analyzing is the percentage of people in a population who are organ donors. So, you know, only 5% of the population donates their organs, whatever it may be. Then in group B, there are all these countries that have really high rates of organ donors. So like 97, 98, 99%, like basically everybody donates their organs mm-hmm. there. And in one group, there was Denmark, and in another group, there was Sweden. And he was like, what is the difference between these two groups? Like, they're very close to each other geographically. They have similar populations. They have similar cultural values. You would think that they would be very similar. And he was like, are the people in you know Denmark just jerks and don't want to <laughs> donate their organs? Like, what's the deal? Yeah. And when he looked at it, what he found was in the really low groups, they were sent a form that said, if you want to be an organ donor, check here. And then in the really high groups, they were sent a form that said, if you don't want to be an organ donor, check here. And so it was the difference between opt in and opt out. Mm -hmm. Now, the lesson in all this is that when you talk to someone and ask them, hey, would you like to donate your organs or, you know, or are you an organ donor? We think that that's a decision that's like personal to us. Like, yes, I made that decision or I didn't make that decision for a particular reason or this is something that's important to me. You know, we back into all these reasons for why we do things. Mm -hmm. But the truth of the matter is whether or not you choose to be an organ donor has more to do with the type of form that you were sent than anything else. And so I think we, we often think about how the way, you know, how the way the people around us may impact our lifestyle or our actions. Mm -hmm. But the truth is that the forms that we read, the signs that we see, the things that are on your desk at work, the things that are in your kitchen at home, they impact the actions that you take. And it's easy to back into reasons for why we do particular things, but these are all trigger points that determine the behavior that you have. And so here's an example of how I use this to form a good habit. I, I've always brushed my teeth for, you know, all my life just got ingrained in me as a, as a um, kid with my parents, but I never was in the habit of flossing. And so I was trying to figure out how I could floss. And when I analyzed, you know, what I wasn't doing right, I was like a pain for me to take the floss out of the drawer. I would never remember it. I didn't like wrapping around my fingers. It was just like all this extra work, right? And so I bought like those pre-made flossers. I bought a little bowl and I put them in it right next to my toothbrush. And so now every time I see my toothbrush and brush my teeth, I see the flossers there and I never forget now. And it's not about putting up a post-it note or sending myself a reminder on my calendar or, you know, any other tactic to remember to do this. It's just by changing the trigger that was in my environment, by making it more visible. It was like switching from a form where it said check here to opt out to switching one that check here to opt in, right? Mm -hmm. It was, it made it easier based on what my environment was surrounding me with. Now, imagine how this, I call it the visibility method because I was making it visible for me, you know, to see them, but Imagine what it would be like 
to surround your entire lifestyle with that? What if your desk at work or your workflow, your process at work was filled with these trigger points that made it easier for you to be more productive, more creative, more impactful in your work? What if your kitchen was filled with you know, different types of utensils or plates or, you know, foods that made it easier for you to eat healthy rather than, you know, I don't know, get off your diet and not stick to that. Right. And if you can, if you can design your environment in a way that takes advantage of these trigger points, then you can change your behavior without even, without needing willpower and motivation and all that other stuff. Like a lot of times if people want to make a change, a friend will look at them and be like, yeah, you need a good dose of willpower. You need to like, you know, you just need some self-control, but I don't think that's the answer at all. You know, you just need to put the thing on the top shelf so it's harder for you to see it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's not. It's like, you know, if you can make these small tweaks in your environment, then it makes the choice for you without you having to rely on yourself to figure it out. Mm -hmm. and, and you also say getting started is the most important step. Yeah, well, I I had a um, I was in I was in New York for the US Open and I was uh, at this little I don't know this dinner or whatever and Lindsay Davenport the tennis player was mm -hmm. there and she was fielding some questions and I I asked her I was like hey Lindsay um you know I learned a lot from my experience as an athlete a lot of people say that sports teaches them a lot of lessons what did you learn as a professional athlete that you didn't learn as uh you know as an amateur what did you learn once you turned pro and she talked about stuff like growing up fast and, you know, having to learn to live your life in front of the media and everything. But then she said, like, all the important things about sports, everything, everything critical that she learned about, like, work ethic and all of that, she learned it as an amateur. She didn't learn it as a professional. And so the lesson that I sort of pulled from that was you don't need to be the best to pull a lot of value out of things. And I think a lot of times we think, you know, we look around and we're like, oh, well, if you can't be the best, this is just like so typical of American culture. Like if you can't be number one or two, then why even try at all? But the truth is you can extract the majority of value from things, even if you're not the professional athlete or the professional writer or the blockbuster entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Like you can gain just as much fulfillment and happiness and health and growth out of that from committing to the process in the same way. And so I don't really think that excellence is required for growth, I guess is what I'm saying. And so that's why I think starting is so critical. And in many ways, I mean, starting is more important than succeeding because the people who start are the only ones who are going to end up finishing anything in the first place. Um, but the, I would say that that's one of the biggest reasons why I believe so big in just getting started on a consistent basis. So whether that's holding yourself to a schedule where you create content on, you know, every Tuesday and Thursday, every single week, or whether it's holding yourself accountable and making sure you get into the gym every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, whatever that is, like just continually get started. If you develop the ability to get started consistently, then eventually you're going to succeed. But I would say that's the main reason why I believe in starting so much. And, and one of the takeaways that I have from that, that I've started doing, even just with something as simple as a to-do list is instead of writing like finish or like ship or deliver something, I just put start or draft or something that's like, okay, there's no reason why I couldn't check that off if I write like a word or something, but just the act of starting or putting your shoes on to go for a run. Like that's always a common thing. Like if you put your shoes on, you're going to go out the door. It's just like yeah. getting to your shoes and like putting your feet in them is like, that's the hardest part about having a running routine. Sure. It's so true. And I treat, I, it's a really good point you bring up because I've tried to treat my process like that a little bit more. And I actually, I wrote an article today that mentioned two examples of this. So 
right now I'm working towards a, a, just a fitness goal of doing 100 push-ups in a row. And when I started, I could only do 36. And I was like, man, that's kind of, you know, that's tough. And if I looked around, I was like, no, you know, not that good. And I was like, if I, if I would have done it the way I did previously, I would have said, all right, I want to do 100 push-ups by, you know, May 1st or whatever. I would have given myself this deadline mm-hmm. that I had to do it by. But instead, I decided to take a different approach and I said, all right, I'm just going to start a push-up workout every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And so the goal, there was no goal for the number of push-ups I had to do. There was no goal for, you know, like how great each workout had to be. It was just to do it. And um, just by committing to starting that process, I mean, I've made huge gains just in the last couple of months. I, I did 70 in a row the other day. And so, you know, I'm not there yet, but I think that that process of committing to start is so key. And I did the same thing with my writing schedule. I used to be terrible with sticking to a writing schedule. I would only write when I was motivated or when I was really excited. And now I have a rule, like I publish an article every Monday and every Thursday, and it it's going up, whether it's good or not, whether it's compelling or not, whether it's shorter than I thought it would be, it's going to get out. And just having that rule of like, get started, don't worry about the performance, worry about the practice of the craft that has helped so much. Mm-hmm. And so you're kind of an advocate of what I would call food hacking. And so you you have ways to kind of optimize how you eat and your nutrition to improve not only your health, but like being more productive. So what are some of the ways that you do that? Yeah, that's uh, food hacking. That's interesting. I haven't heard it called that before, but that is that is a decent word for it. So I made some changes for, you know, like I've mentioned a couple of times already, I've always been interested in health and wellness and being an athlete. So I wanted to make changes for performance reasons, but not just physical performance. I also wanted to do it for work performance Mm -hmm. because like, you know, like you, I have to create content on a pretty uh, regular basis. And I want to make sure that I'm getting good content out there, that I'm maximizing my creative energy, that I'm doing my best work at the best time. Mm -hmm. That's another thing we don't think about very often is when is your energy the highest for the particular task you want to do? So for example, my creative energy is highest in the morning. So I was trying to figure out ways, how can I spend more of my morning working on creative tasks? Whereas my physical energy for say lifting is often highest in the early evening. So it was like, all right, well, I should be working out then Mm -hmm. to maximize the benefits for that. So a couple of the changes I made, one change was intermittent fasting. And so I only eat two meals a day now. And it sounds crazy when you first tell people, they think, oh, like, you know, fasting, I could never fast for 16 hours every day, which is what I do. I eat my first meal around noon or one, and then I eat my last meal around eight or 9 p.m. And it's honestly, what it really is, is just a big mental barrier to get over. So like, I love breakfast, so Mm -hmm. I don't skip breakfast. I just push it back and eat it at lunchtime. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, during that feeding window from noon till eight, say, I can eat as much as my I want. I eat just eat what I normally would eat in three meals, but I break it into that eight eight hour window. There are a couple advantages of this. The first is, let's talk about the physical piece first. So, the first is fat loss. So when I started this, I weighed about two. I'm six five. I weighed about two oh five. And when I got done, well, I've been doing it for over a year now. But in this period of time where I was measuring it, I went from two hundred five to two fifteen, and my body fat dropped from fourteen percent to eleven percent. So I actually gained more than ten pounds of muscle because I was cutting fat at mm-hmm. the same time. Um, so there's that benefit, and the reason that happens is because to just to not go into the science too much, but when you're when you're in the fed state when you eat your insulin levels are higher and when your insulin levels are higher it's very hard for your body to burn fat 
But when you're in the fasted state, your insulin levels are lower, and so it's much easier to burn fat. So by compressing the amount of time you eat each day, you're giving your body basically 16 hours to burn fat as opposed to the eight hours where you're feeding. Mm -hmm. um, and so that leads to fat loss. So that's the one benefit. But then there's this other benefit, the productivity benefit of you know your energy and your time. And so because I eat my first meal around noon or around lunchtime, I don't have to worry about, you know, eating in the morning, preparing food, all that stuff. I wake up, I get a glass of water, I start writing immediately. And I can usually write from, you know, with edits and maybe a break here or there from like 8 a.m. till noon. And that's a great productive time for me, those four hours. Mm -hmm. And so that's maximizing my creative energy and my time on that. And I talked to a friend of mine named Rand from uh, France, and he he's done a bunch of food experiments. But one thing that he said that I thought was interesting, he was like, look, anytime I eat food and my body has to spend energy processing that food, that's energy that I can't spend on writing or creating or the work that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So you, your body has, only has so much energy in it at one time that it's using. And so if you're using a lot of that energy to digest and process food, it's not going to your brain. And and, you know, that sounds a little extreme maybe to some people, but I think that why not put yourself in the most optimized state to create great content or to do great work? And so that's another shift that I've made that has helped a lot. Um, I've also done other things like eating, you know, more carbs on the days I work out and less carbs on the days I don't. And that allows me to, you know, burn more fat and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've definitely hacked it in a couple of different ways, but um, that I would say is the primary benefit, the shift in time by using intermittent fasting. And so how does that timing line up with the workout? So you work out like kind of right in the middle of the two. Yeah, times I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not just uh, constantly gorging and eating for, <laughs> you know, for eight hours, but I typically I keep it's more or less a two meal schedule. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll eat my first meal around noon or one and then I'll go lift, let's say at five or six and then get back at eight or nine and, you know, and eat my last meal. Mm -hmm. So it usually, it usually works like that. And there's an additional benefit to that strength wise and fitness wise, which is that when you have your largest meal post-workout, um, you tend to make more gains. So I, I can eat a large meal right after I train as well, which mm -hmm. is good. And so as an entrepreneur, what are some of your most important habits? Obviously these food habits are one of your biggest ones. But what are some of your habits that if you neglect them, like it impacts how much work you can get done? Ooh, that's a good one. Okay, so the the phrase that I would use to describe this is keystone habits. And so a keystone habit is that thing that you do in your life that when you do it, everything else tends to fall into place. So it can be different for each person, like maybe it's playing music or whatever it may be for mm -hmm. you. But for me, it's fitness. And so when I work out, if I work out, I'm more productive, I'm more focused, I'm more creative, I sleep better, all these things. And actually, I eat better. It's so weird when I, you know, when you work out, you think, oh, well, you're, you know, you're working out a lot, you could eat what you want. But for me, when I work out, it's like, I'm already taking care of my body. So I want to make sure I'm eating well, too. So actually, it like incentivizes me to do all these things better. Um, so that is like the one keystone habit for me that changes everything. And if I'm not working out and you know, it's easy to do, I've been there. And if you're not working out for an extended period of time, for me, everything starts to fall away a little bit. I get more stressed. I start sweating a little bit and still and stay up later at night. I don't sleep as well. I'm not nearly as productive mm -hmm. and I eat worse. And so all those things like happen just, and they can be reversed just by me working out. And so that is definitely one keystone habit for me. But then 
Another thing you mentioned is like, what is what are some of the most critical habits for you as an entrepreneur? For me, because creating content and providing value is at the centerpiece of what I do as an entrepreneur, writing on that consistent basis has been the biggest shift for me. So, you know, I have fitness on one end that gets my life in order. And then the other thing is make sure that you create and get an article out every Monday and every Thursday on jamesclear.com. You do that, you got value, you got, you know, impact and your life is in order because of the fitness habit. So those are the two for me that work that way. Mm -hmm. And even for people that aren't writers, whether you're like a musician or an artist, or even if you're doing audio or video, like words still have to hit like pages in those in those different mediums maybe not art but um like even preparing for this interview like i have to write out questions i have to do research and so like every day i'm writing somehow whether that's emails or it's a blog post or outlines of some other form of multimedia so yeah i could talk about that for a long time i think writing is maybe the most critical skill for business and also for being an entrepreneur if people who write well understand what it's like to be in someone else's shoes. They get what it's like to get inside the customer's head and see what it's like to be on their end. They are more self-aware because they're putting their brain onto paper all the time. And I think they think more clearly because they have to express themselves in written word. And to do that well, you have to be a clear thinker. And so between all of those things, I think that's a significant benefit of writing. I would encourage anybody who's looking to improve whatever skills to write more. And while I'm on this little tangent about this, um, a, the best book that I've ever read on writing is called Breakthrough Advertising by Eugene Schwartz. And it's a direct response copywriting book. It's kind of dense and it's expensive. If you find it on Amazon, it might cost you 60 or 70 bucks. Jeez. But it's, yeah, but it's worth it. It was written back in the 70s. Eugene Schwartz was responsible for like billions of dollars worth of sales of products. And what it teaches you is how to get people to take actions based on what you write. And whether you're looking to sell anything or get in touch with somebody, no matter what you write, you want someone to take an action. If I write an email to you and I want you to talk you know, or set up a phone call, I want you to take an action mm -hmm. and respond back to me and schedule something. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you're writing a blog post and you want your people to subscribe or you want them to download a free report or you know, eventually sell them a product, whatever it is, you want them to take an action. And so understanding how to write for action and the direct response copywriting techniques is critical for any good writer. I mean, every, everything we do is trying to, is based off of, you know, trying to get people to respond in some way or meet up in some way or connect in some way. Mm -hmm. So I think that that book breakthrough advertising by Eugene Schwartz is a, is a great read and very beneficial for anybody looking to improve their writing. Well, this has been like the most action packed interview that I've done for this podcast so far. So Thanks for uh, thanks for joining me today, James. What are, what are you working on next? What's kind of the big thing that you're looking forward to? Yeah, no problem. Um, so jamesclear.com is the centerpiece for what I will consider to be my life's work. Um, I Everything I've done so far, whether it's Passive Panda or learning how to build audiences online, has been building the foundation for jamesclear.com, which is focused on teaching people how to live a healthy life. That's the central question that I try to answer there is what does it mean to live a healthy life? And I talk about behavior change and intermittent fasting and fitness and exercise and creating and exploring all the things that we touched on today. Mm -hmm. um, and actually specifically for your readers, I went ahead and put together a download page for them to get all the resources that we talked about. So it's at jamesclear.com slash CR for cubicle renegade, jamesclear.com slash CR, but they'll get, 
articles on the habit formation stuff, visibility method, um, why it's important to start and rather than succeed, the four three R's of habit change, that habit loop. Um, also a little bit on um, identity-based habits, which we didn't go into too much today. And then, you know, any other resources that we've mentioned here that I'll make sure I'll, I link up to there to uh, make it really beneficial for them so they can just get it all in one place. But um, yeah, that's that's my, my goal is just to tr- try to provide as much value as possible for people and help them in whatever way I can. So I have a contact form on my website. And if, you know, if people have questions after listening to this or if you have a specific topic you want to talk to me more about, feel free to reach out. I'm happy to help however I can. Awesome, James. Thanks for putting that together. I mean, a lot of these topics we talked about, you have very detailed explanations on them that are, are helpful to like actually read through and like think through like some of your habits and how they can apply to all these different steps. Because, you know, we just touched on seven or eight different, you know, like ideas and strategies for these habits. But to, yeah, to actually go in and like read about how they would apply to you, I think is going to be super helpful for people. Yeah, I hope so too. I, I try to do my best to be, you know, I enjoy the science and the theory and explaining it, but I try to be a practitioner as well and like give real examples from real life because a lot of times, you know, the way things are in a research lab is not the way they are in real life. So mm-hmm. putting things into practice is having that balance between understanding the science and understanding the practice, I think is important. So it's good to hear that you benefited from some of those examples. I try to put them in there. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully other people find them useful as well. Well, thanks for joining us today, James. Yeah, absolutely. It's been my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. All right. So I hope you enjoyed that talk with James. That was seriously my favorite interview so far. And if you have any habits that you should be stopping or any habits that you want to build, look at some of those strategies and look at some of the posts that he's written that I'll link to in the show notes for this and really focus some time on those habits. Thanks again for everyone that's left a review for this podcast on iTunes. I really appreciate it. If you haven't done so, you can just go to pocketchange.com slash iTunes, and it'll take you right there to leave a review. In the next episode, I'll be sitting down with Antonio Santano of Real Men Real Style. We'll talk all about how he's used YouTube to build his platform online, and also what's important about style as a male or female entrepreneur. See you next time. Thanks for listening to the Pocket Changed Cubicle Renegade Podcast at www.pocketchanged.com. To read this episode's show notes or check out other sessions, head over to cubiclerenegade.com.